Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, please open your Bibles, everybody, to the book of Mark, chapter 2. We're looking at verses 13 to 28 this morning, Mark 2, 13 to 28. <clears throat> um, Brandon prayed for General Assembly coming up this week, and uh, so that is the annual business meeting of our denomination, General Assembly. It's going to be held in Birmingham, Alabama this year. Um, it moves from city to city, from year to year, and um, <clears throat> I uh, appreciate the church's willingness to send Mary and me there, and so we will be leaving tomorrow to travel to Birmingham, and uh, we'll be there for uh, the entire week. Festivities or activities start on Tuesday night, and uh, it lasts through Thursday night, maybe Friday morning if we have more business to do. So um, a lot happens in, at General Assembly. We vote on overtures that come before us that have been sent up from our presbyteries. We hear reports from our denominational agencies. Um, <clears throat> we have worship services together. There are seminars. It's really a, a wonderful week, and we're expecting record attendance this year. We broke uh, the record attendance last year when we had about 2,000 pastors and elders show up, and they're expecting more than that this year. Um, <clears throat> some controversial things before us, and so I think that's probably why so many people are registering and planning to come. So I just want to let you know about that. That's where Mary and I will be. would appreciate your prayers for the denomination, uh, for our deliberations and our fellowship together. And if you want to um, watch what happens, you can do that. And so an email was sent to you this morning, and um, there's a, a prayer request there, I, I believe, for the General Assembly. There's a link that you can go to to watch by live stream what happens. And uh, I think that probably won't start till Wednesday. So most activity is Wednesday afternoon and all day Thursday. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, take a look at that email this morning, and you can join us remotely this week. All right, Mark chapter 2. <clears throat> you know, it is often said, I think, uh, uh, and, and probably with good reason, um, conventional wisdom tells us that when you're with other people or you're at a, a dinner party or some kind of social engagement that there are two things you never talk about, right? Religion and politics. Um, some families are, are different. And maybe they like to tangle on those things, but generally speaking, people tend to kind of avoid those topics, and the reason why is because it very often leads to disagreements and arguments and conflict and controversy. And there are not many of us who just love to seek out controversy and want to enter into it. Most of us tend to want to keep the peace and avoid the tension that comes with disagreement. Well, there was somebody in the Bible, actually, who um, seemed to always be at the center of controversy, and that person is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus was a lightning rod for controversy. He was constantly in conflict. And unfortunately, sometimes people can notice this in the Scriptures and think that it gives them permission then to be argumentative and divisive 
Uh, sometimes this reality can kind of pour gasoline on that fire, and that would be an unfortunate conclusion to draw. We are commanded in Scripture not to be argumentative. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. But as is so often the case when we look at the Scriptures, we're kind of trying to balance truths. On the one hand, yeah, we're to be peacemakers. On the other hand, there's no denying that Jesus was constantly in the center of conflict and controversy. And uh, R.C. Sproul says it this way, Jesus' life was a storm of controversy. The apostles, like the prophets before them, could hardly go a day without controversy. To avoid controversy is to avoid Christ. We can have peace, but it is a servile and carnal peace when or if it's happening when truth is slain in the streets. So we are in a sermon series here going through the Gospel of Mark, calling this the Servant King. We're looking at the life of Jesus, the Servant of King, Servant King. And uh, we're just looking at how Jesus relates to a variety of issues. Last week it was Jesus and forgiveness, and we saw Jesus' authority to forgive sins. And so this week we're looking at Jesus and controversy. And you might remember from last week that the controversy already began in last week's text. Remember when Jesus was speaking to the paralytic and talking about being able to forgive sins, the scribes were there and they were saying, who is this fellow and what is he talking about? He's acting like he can forgive sins. This is blasphemy. And so last week, the controversy, the conflict was already beginning. I mentioned it last week that this is a theme that's going to continue throughout the book of Mark and in our passage today. We're just going to see it show up repeatedly here. And so we're going to look at three examples of controversy that Jesus finds himself involved in. So if you're able to stand, please do that now. And I'm going to read Mark 2, starting with verse 13, going to the end of the chapter. Mark 2.13, controversy. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made." And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made 
their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of, Abi- of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Holy Spirit, please come, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, let's look at uh, Jesus' connection to controversy here this morning. We're going to look at this in in three ways, of course. We've got uh, a controversy about feasting, and then a controversy about fasting, and then a controversy about resting. So these are the three things we're considering. So first of all, let's consider the controversy about feasting. Now, when I say feasting here, I don't mean necessarily regarding any of the food that Jesus was eating, um, but instead the people with whom Jesus was feasting or eating. That's, That's the nature of the controversy here. And so starting with verse 13... Um, We see Jesus continuing with his teaching ministry, and as he passes by, um, we see that he notices this man named Levi and calls Levi to follow him. So here we're seeing Jesus is continuing to call disciples to himself. He's continuing to build this group of disciples, which will eventually be 12 main disciples. But you might remember chapter 1, we saw that Jesus had already chosen four men, two sets of brothers to himself. And he called them to follow him, and they rose and followed him, just like Levi is doing here in this text. Immediately, he follows Jesus. And so, Levi is now the fifth disciple called. Um, No controversy in calling fishermen to be your disciples, but there is something controversial here because Levi is not a fisherman. He is a tax collector. And we know that because it says here in verse 14, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, was sitting at the tax booth. Now, the reason that this is controversial is because there was nobody who was despised and hated more in Jewish society than a tax collector. Remember, the Jews are living under the occupation of the Roman Empire, and the Romans would tax their subjects even through Jewish authority, so King Herod was in charge of taxes, but only because the Roman authority was over him, and then Herod would send out tax collectors like this man Levi to go out and collect taxes. So Levi here is representing this this hated enemy of the people of God. Uh, People would regard him as a collaborator with the enemy, so the Jews hated tax collectors. But not only for that, but tax collectors had a reputation for being very corrupt. They would just charge whatever they wanted. Very often they would charge more than necessary, and they would just skim the amount off the top for themselves. And it was very rare to find an honest tax collector. And so tax collectors were hated. And now here is Jesus saying, this tax collector, I want you to be my disciple. It's a controversial decision. By the way, uh, referring to Levi here, if you go to Matthew 9, 9, which gives uh, another depiction of this story, he's called Matthew there. And so um, just like um, Simon's name was changed to P, 
Peter, perhaps Levi's name was also changed to Matthew, but we believe Levi is actually Matthew. So, story continues. Um, We see some tension building already. Jesus calling a tax collector. Then verse 15, we see that uh, Jesus is is feasting. He's uh, reclining at table, it says, in his house, reclining at table. That's just a reference to to having a meal together. The the way they would eat in ancient times is you'd have a table in the middle, and then there would be couches around the table. The food would be on the table, and people would just kind of kick back and lie down. Rather than sitting like we might, they would kind of lie down while they ate. And so here, um, Jesus is reclining at table. And then if you look at verse 15, notice that uh, it's not just one tax collector that he likes to hang out with. There are many (laughs) at this dinner, many tax collectors, and not just tax collectors, but sinners as well, sinners, you know, a very broad term that we would think of now, sinners then probably referred more to uh, just people who were outside the covenant community, had no interest in God's law, just, you know, unbelievers, outsiders, outcasts, uh, not necessarily people of any kind of extreme immorality, just people who didn't have a place within the covenant community. And so they are there as well. And uh, so, you know, this is this is noticed. Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, says, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They, they're scandalized by this. I mean, this is just shocking to them. It's totally unacceptable for a religious leader of Jesus' reputation to be spending time with these kinds of people. I mean, today, you know, we, we're, we value diversity today, and so it's not that unusual to see people hanging out with people different than them. We, we kind of understand that's generally a good thing. It just wasn't understood as a good thing in this time. And the fact that um, Jesus is having a meal with them uh, is, is even more significant because, you know, again, today in this day and age, we're so used to fast food, you know, you just run through the drive through and get some food and eat in your car, or at the very least, you know, you run in and you eat your taco, and there's nothing formal, there's nothing significant, it doesn't really mean anything except that you're hungry. <laughs> but back then, when you would recline at table with people, what that meant is, is I'm, I'm connecting with you, I am identifying with you. I, I, I want to walk through life with you. I, I'm making a connection with you. And the Pharisees see this, and they're just like, this, this is unacceptable. Now, the, the Pharisees, first time the Pharisees are mentioned here in uh, the book of Mark. And so, Pharisees were um, kind of an unusual group. Pharisee actually means separatist. So, that they kind of kept themselves separate from particularly ritual uncleanness. They, they weren't priests. They weren't, um, you know, vocational religious authorities, but um, they were a group of, of laymen who were absolutely devoted and committed to following the Scriptures and every jot and tittle, and they were so concerned that everybody do that as well that they set up a whole bunch of rules and regulations to try to make sure that nobody would disobey the Bible. 
And so we have to respect that intention anyway. I mean, the Pharisees had a a good desire in mind. They want to see people obey the Scriptures. They don't want to see that violated, but they would go too far and they would come up with all of these rules. It would be like an example if you could think about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve uh, ate the fruit, and it would be like the Pharisees would have reacted to that and said, okay, let's build a big wall around all gardens and make sure that no one ever goes into a garden ever again because... The potential exists that you might take some fruit off a tree that you shouldn't have and eat it. So we'll just deny everybody the enjoyment of any garden in any place to make this protection. You know, again, the intent is good, but it's just way over the top. And so that's what's partially happening here. The Pharisees are seeing Jesus hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners, and they're scandalized. So Jesus has a response. Here's one thing you'll notice very often is that when Jesus is in the middle of controversy, very rarely, I don't think any time, does he say, oh, 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 sorry, yeah, I shouldn't have really said it that way. Here, let me back up. Let me walk that back a little bit and rephrase it for you. Oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean this. I mean, most of the time when Jesus is in controversy, he just kind of turns up the heat. You know, he, he just does not back off. And so we're seeing that in all these incidents. And so when Um, these Pharisees challenged Jesus, verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So the point he's making here is that it's very natural for doctors to hang out with sick people. You know, imagine you call your doctor, I need to make an appointment, and they say, are you feeling bad? And you say, well, yeah. Oh, sorry, we don't make appointments with sick people. You'll have to go somewhere else. You know, I mean, your first reaction would be, get a new doctor. Uh, This is absurd. This is what a doctor is supposed to do. And what Jesus is saying here is, this is my mission. My mission is to come for tax collectors and sinners, for people who are sick, for people who are a mess, for people who are outcasts, for people who are not accepted, for the people that no one wants to be with. Those are the people I want to be with. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm coming for the sick, not for the healthy. There is just a great challenge for us, friends, because it is all of our tendencies, mine included, to hang out and gravitate toward people who think like us and dress like us and look like us and believe like us and behave like us. And when people look, act, think differently, we look the other way. We just don't want the discomfort. But that's not the way Jesus lived. He hung out with people different than him, tax collectors and sinners, and the fact that it scandalized the people viewing him did not matter to him a bit. Uh, Paul says this later in um, Romans 12, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. You, know, you hear me pretty frequently with some regularity, I know from this pulpit, that, that I, will, I will challenge the views we hear in the culture about LGBT stuff and, and homosexuality, and I'm firmly convinced that the Scripture has, uh, does not condone that behavior at all. And so as it comes up in the Scriptures, we're going to talk about that, and, and you hear it, and I hope that our position, my position on that is clear to you. But, but I hope that you would never understand me to be saying that because we disagree with their view or their practice, 
that that somehow means you shouldn't love them or be with them or hang out with them or work with them or be neighbors with them. Christians should be the very first people to come along somebody in the LGBT community and befriend and love and care and serve them. We're not to look the other way. We're not to ostracize them from our community or from our friendship. We're not to be afraid if they move in next door. You're not to get creeped out if they're in the cubicle next to you at work. We're to reach out to these people with love. That doesn't mean we condone their behavior, but the fact that we don't condone their behavior doesn't mean that we should step away from them in our lifestyle. That's not what Jesus would do. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners, and that's controversial. And if you follow that lead, you're going to find controversy. There's people in the church probably who won't like that. And you're going to have to respond to that, but that's the model that Jesus is setting for us. So that's a controversy about feasting. But there's also a controversy here about fasting. Starting with verse 18, the disciples of John and the Pharisees are said in verse 15 to be fasting. They're fasting. But Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And so this also is noticed. And so it says here that people are coming in verse 18, and they're asking, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast, Jesus? So they're not really pointing the finger at Jesus here as to whether he's fasting. They just see that his disciples aren't fasting, and they're saying, you know, Jesus, you're their leader, so you're responsible. So how come your disciples don't fast? Now, first of all, you might say, well, what is fasting? So fasting can be defined like this. Keep looking the wrong way here. Um, Fasting, the voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. That's fasting. Now, notice this is a broad definition, denial of a normal function. Normally, we think of fasting as having something to do with denying ourselves food, and that's certainly correct. You know, the word breakfast is breaking a fast, (laughs) You know, you haven't eaten through the night. You've been fasting, in a sense, and when you get up and have your first meal of the day, you're breaking that fast, so we call it breakfast. But a fast can apply not just to food, but to other things, like I'm going to stop buying this thing, or I'm going to fast from my phone for a little while. You know, any kind of normal function for the sake of spiritual activity or growth can be fasting. Um, And so probably fasting from food is uh, what is in mind here in this text, And um, fasting is um, something that was only commanded actually once a year in the Old Testament during the Day of Atonement, so only really a requirement for the people of God to fast just one time a year. So other fasting that would take place would be just kind of voluntary fasting that the people of God would uh, engage in uh, as they were led by, by the Lord. So just the Bible, just one time, Old Testament, one time a year fasting. But here's what the Pharisees did. They said you got to fast twice a week, not, not twice a year, okay? <laughs> twice a year would be twice as much as what God required, twice a week. We see this in um, Luke 18, you remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector? It says the Pharisee, he's standing by himself and he prays to God and says, oh God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, I'm not like all these bad people, I'm not like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. So... This is what marked the Pharisee, you know. They, they, 
came up with these agreements, these rules, these prohibitions, and these prohibitions would kind of get equal authority to the Scriptures themselves, and they were fervently devoted to them. And so the idea here, the concern, the controversy in this passage is Pharisees are fasting twice a week, Jesus' disciples aren't fasting twice a week, so what's the matter? Jesus' disciples, are you guys not serious? You're not devoted like the Pharisees are. You clearly aren't as serious about your faith. They're doing this twice a week. You're not doing it at all. Now, one interesting question that should be raised here is how do people know that the Pharisees' disciples and John's disciples are fasting? I mean, how does anybody know when you fast? How is that seen? It's not seen unless you tell them, unless you say, hey, I'm fasting this week. I just want you to know that so that you're impressed. <laughs> I, I don't know how anybody really knows, except they're making a big deal out of it, and so that's apparently what the Pharisees' disciples and John's disciples are doing, making a big deal. Everybody knows they're fasting, but not Jesus' disciples. So here's how Jesus answers, starting here in verse 19. So he says some things here that maybe sound confusing uh, on the surface. First of all, he talks about a wedding, um, and, and he, says, he says, can wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they, they cannot fast. So he's just thinking of a, of a wedding, and you know, a wedding is very different than a spiritual discipline like fasting. You know, fasting brings a certain level of discomfort. You know, it's not always a super pleasant thing to do, particularly if it's an extended fast and you're going days without food. That, that's more of, a, <clears throat> more of a kind of a solemn, difficult thing. And what Jesus is saying is he's drawing a comparison to a wedding, which is not a solemn, difficult thing. A wedding is a happy, joyful thing. And so the, the comparison that he's drawing here is between himself and the bridegroom. He's saying at a wedding feast, the bridegroom's there. And when the bridegroom is there, they're not fasting, they're feasting. They're, they're rejoicing. They're having a great time because the groom is there. And what Jesus is implying here is that I am here. And when I am here with my disciples, there is no reason for them to fast. This is a time for them to be joyful because the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is in their midst. Now, he goes on in verse 20, and he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And so I think Jesus here is giving a hint at his own death. The time is coming when he'll be taken away, he'll be nailed to a cross, and then they'll fast so this is not a denial of the value of fasting. What Jesus is just saying is that Jesus is here, and so this is a time for celebration. The disciples shouldn't be fasting now. They should be rejoicing. And then he goes on, and he uses kind of two illustrations. And so the first one here is in verse 21. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And so what he's saying here is that, um, you know, if you have a, a, a garment, you know, something that you wear, you've worn it for a long time, you've washed it over and over again, it's shrunk, but it's shrunk as much as it's going to shrink, and there's a tear in it, and then you get a, a new, like a patch, a cloth, an unshrunk cloth is a, a, a patch, you get a patch and it's never been washed, so it's not shrinking, and then you put that on the hole, what's going to happen is when you wash the whole thing now, that new patch is going to shrink, and the old garment is not going to shrink. And when the patch shrinks, it's going to end up tearing away from that hole, and it's going to make the whole problem worse. 
That's, that's the illustration. No, nobody does that. You don't take old patches and sew it to, uh, you don't take new patches and sew it to old garments. That's the first thing he says. Then, then he goes on. Verse 22, another illustration. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So in that time, wine was not captured in bottles like it is for us today. Wine was stored and, and used in old wineskins, and something looked a little bit like a canteen, but it was made of leather. And when the uh, wineskins were used for a long period of time, they would get old, they would get brittle, they wouldn't expand very much. And if you pour new wine into those old wineskins, because they're brittle, the wine begins to ferment, it begins to expand, and it will actually burst, break the wineskins, and the wine spills out, and you lose both the wineskins and the wine. And so Jesus is saying, nobody does that either. That makes no sense. So... Why is he saying these things? What, what does this have to do with anything? And it seems like the point that Jesus is making is, is that, you know, he's saying that I'm here now, and I've come as the Messiah of the world, and I am not an old wine. I, I am new wine for you. I, I am not merely a, a patch that you can just put on a garment and fix it in just one kind of little isolated part of your life. No, you don't need just a patch. You need a whole new garment. You don't need just old wine. You need brand new wine. What Jesus is saying here is that, that I'm coming here to do something revolutionary and transformative. I'm not just an add-on to your life. I'm not just one more person coming along like all the rabbis to give a number of um, prohibitions about how you should observe fasting. He's saying, I am everything to you, or I am nothing. That, that's the point. I, I'm, this is, you've never seen anything like this before. Don't look at me, Jesus is saying. Don't look at me as just a patch to just help you in one little isolated part of your life. Like, I really need a job. I'll pray to Jesus, and he'll get me a job. But then once he gets me the job, I'm going to go on with my life exactly as it was. That's using Jesus as a patch. Really wish I could find a wife. I'll pray to Jesus. Jesus gives me a wife. Thank you, Jesus. And off you go with the rest of your life, not even thinking of him. That's using Jesus as a patch. Jesus is everything or he is nothing. He should have full, total kingship and lordship over every aspect of the life of anyone who comes to him. When I was in eighth grade, I went out for the basketball team and um, it got to the end of the practices, and it got to the point where the last cut was about to be made, and um, I, I was the last guy there, and so I didn't know if I was going to make the team, and I remember it was after practice once, the coach came to me after a play and said, Obana, do you want to make this team or not? And apparently, I had just done something stupid on the floor, I guess. I mean, I must not have really given much effort, but something gave him the impression that I wasn't really that interested in making the team. And when he asked me that question, I thought to myself, and I thought, no, I really don't want to make this team. I don't. And, and that's just when I knew. I just, this is just not worth my time. But here's why I knew that I didn't want to make the team. Because if I made the team, it would require a total overhaul of my schedule and my priorities. I'd have to be there every day after school. I'd have to give my everything to this team. 
and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want basketball to have that kind of dominance in my life. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want me, you've got to allow me to have that kind of dominance in your life. You've got to rearrange your schedule and rearrange your priorities if you're going to live with Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's not just old wine. He's not just a patch. He is the one who reigns over everything. And so that's the, out of this controversy over fasting, that's what we see. So one more thing. Now we see a controversy about resting. Controversy about resting. Now, we're not going to go into a lot of detail in these last verses, 23 to 28. I'm actually going to pick up with this again next time and tie it to the beginning of chapter 3 because it's all about the Sabbath. But I just want you to see that this is yet another controversy, and this time it's over this issue, the Sabbath. Sabbath, very important day in the life of um, of a Jewish person at this time, um, you know, Sabbath instituted at creation is a fourth commandment. The Sabbath, as most people know, is supposed to be a day of rest, not a day of work. We're supposed to rest from all our labors. Well, the Pharisees come in and they kind of mess it up again because the Pharisees, again, they just got all of these additional rules and regulations trying to keep people from violating the Sabbath. Good intention, yes, but I mean, for instance, I've heard of one rule that they had is that you can't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Because if you spit, the water might go down, the saliva might go down on the ground and germinate with the seed, and then you'd be planting. And that would constitute work. You can't do that. You can't spit. You've got to go spit on a rock. But you can't spit in the soil. You know, that's the example of the kind of minutia that the Pharisees would, would get into. So here's what happens. Verse 23, it's the Sabbath, and here's Jesus, and he's in the grain fields, and they're uh, making their way, the disciples also, and they begin to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, they, they, they see this. And um, they say in verse 24, why are they doing that? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So they're just, they're just picking up little heads of grain, you know, I mean, that's it, just kind of bringing them into their fingers, and the Pharisees see that and say, they're working. They're violating our laws. I mean, that's the important thing. They're violating our laws, our prohibitions. They're defying our authority here. That is unlawful. And so we'll notice how Jesus responds. Verse 25, he says to them, have you never read? What's he doing? An appeal to Scripture. He's going to 1 Samuel 21, where there's this story of David and his men, and they, they come along to the temple, and they're very hungry, and they have nothing to eat. They go in the temple, they talk to the priest, can we have some bread? There's this sacred bread, which you guys really shouldn't be eating, but the priest gives it to him anyway, and so David and their men, they, they eat the bread, and really that was not what they should have done, but there was a particular need that they had. They were starving, and so they ate the bread. And so what Jesus is doing is he's appealing to that event in 1 Samuel 21 to make the case that it's perfectly okay if we go through the grain, through these fields, these grain fields, and pluck heads of grain. What the Pharisees had done is that they had absolutely drained the Sabbath of every single good thing about it. The, the Sabbath is not supposed to be a burden to people. It's supposed to be a blessing. In fact, Isaiah 58, 13 calls it a delight. Well, to the people living under the Pharisees' influence, the Sabbath was anything but a delight. It was a burden. It was a hassle. 
everybody feeling guilty all the time about doing something wrong on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is pointing this out. But for our purposes here this morning, what I want you to see is that the way he resolves this dispute is referring to Scripture. Have you not read? Don't you know your Bibles? That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. Look what happened in 1 Samuel 21. Look what David did. Look how he was taken care of in his time of need. He was cared for by this bread. And in the same way, we have need here and it's being cared for and there is no violation of the Sabbath here. What Jesus says here at the end, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In in other words, the rules and prohibitions in the Scripture are not there to constrict and burden us. Those rules, restrictions, commands in the Scriptures are made to bless us. And if that loses sight and these things become more of a burden, then they are a delight, then something has gone wrong. But again, bottom line, in this controversy, Jesus refers to Scripture. Our confession of faith, I think, says it very well. Uh, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined could be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. So that gets us through through the text. Those are the three sources of controversy here, feasting, fasting, and resting. And Friends, I want to say to you that if you, in your Christian life, are going to be a person who's going to associate with people differently than you, and you're going to cross bridges and try to reach out to people you disagree with, if you're going to do that, if you're going to live a life that is absolutely dominated by the Lordship of Christ in every aspect of your life, not just one area here or one area there, and if you are going to live your lives fully submitted and devoted to the authority of Scripture in every aspect of your life, controversy will follow you. And that's okay. That's okay. Sometimes controversy erupts. We might think, what did I do wrong? Maybe you did something wrong, you know? I mean, you can, we can be rude and disrespectful and argumentative. We need to examine ourselves. Have I created this controversy unnecessarily? It's a good question to ask. But very often, basic daily devotion to Jesus will cause controversy, particularly in the world in which we live now. And that's certainly what happened to Jesus. To the degree that we're like Jesus, we should expect this to some degree. This controversy got so bad in Jesus' life that it ended up being the reason why he was sent to the cross, resulted in his death, resulted in his execution. But let me finish here by just pointing out now what I think is maybe the most controversial thing about this passage, going back to verse 17, at the very end, what Jesus says, end of verse 17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I think that's the most controversial thing in this whole text. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So counterintuitive, isn't it? Because what we do is we spend our entire lives building our resume of all of our accomplishments and all of our achievements and all of our moral efforts and all of our religion and all the sacrifices that we've made, we're constantly through our lives building a resume, hoping we can present it to God and say, oh God, will you now love me? Will you now finally accept me? Look at how good I am. I fast twice a week. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible so often. I help the poor. My theology is right on the money. I try so hard. My heart is sincere. 
I love my wife and kids. I love my husband and kids. I'm a good person. And we present to God our resume. Will you love me? This is so controversial. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm not interested in your resume. What I want you to bring to me is your weakness, your sorrow, your shame, your guilt, your sin. Bring me that. And my blood will cover it all. And then we'll start building a resume. (laughs) Together, we'll start building a resume. But don't come to me with your resume. Come to me in your sin. That's what Jesus is saying, verse 17. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Perfect song we're going to sing here. I think it sums us up well. Come, ye sinners, band. If you want to come forward, come, ye sinners, poor and needy, because Jesus stands ready to save you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom contained in it. Um, Father, please help us as we seek to love those unlike us. Help us as we seek to live under your lordship. Help us as we seek to submit all things to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.